Well, amen. It is good to open up the scriptures with you and to take time each week to worship our way uh, through a portion of the Word of God. Uh, there is a lot. We're going to be in, uh, in Colossians chapter 3 today, a chunk of it. And there is a lot of great and awesome and relevant and applicable truth for our lives that we can find there. And so before we want to, before we get into it, I want to take just a second and uh, do pray again with you as we open the word that God would reveal his word to us in a way that is life transforming. So if you would pray with me, uh, God, our heavenly father, we thank you. We thank you that you give us your word. Father, you having saved us through your son, the Lord Jesus, and brought us into fellowship with you uh, through your Holy Spirit. You do not leave us to wonder and to wander around uh, with no guidance or direction. Father, you give us uh, an entire volume, book after book after book of instruction about every area of life. Uh, we have in its pages everything we need to know for life and for godliness. And through the word and through the spirit, we are transformed and live a new kind of life. The, through the resurrection power of Jesus, we are enabled to live the life we find in the pages of this book. And Father, we pray that as we study your word this morning, that you would help us not only to understand it, but to obey it. Father, we do not want to be hearers of the word merely, but effectual doers who put it into practice. Father, we, um, we need your help. We need your help to obey. We need your help to hear. We need your help to receive uh, the instruction that we're given in your word and to put it into practice. And so, Father, we ask for your aid knowing that without you, that the life you call us to live is impossible. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to see and to listen and to obey and to hear effectively what you have called us to in these pages. And, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, whenever you're trying to understand what the Lord is saying to you in the Scriptures... Uh, one of the most helpful things that you can do or that we can do as God's people is to look at the context. And that means that we have to look back uh, at what the scripture is saying before the passage that we're currently looking at. And at, as we saw at the end of chapter 2 last week, the emphasis there is that Jesus died on the cross and when he died... He died for our sins and with our sins. That our sins died with him. Our sin nature died with Jesus. So we don't have to be subject to it anymore. And what we're about to see in Colossians chapter 3 and in the rest of the book of Colossians, actually the whole second half of the book of Colossians, is a series of instructions based on that reality, based on that truth. That, that when, we, uh, we're, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the old us, our old sin nature, was buried with Jesus. 
and that in his resurrection, he has raised us also to new life, to live a new kind of life, a kind of life that we could not live and did not live apart from him, but that he has empowered us and enabled us by his Holy Spirit to live as we continue to put our trust in him day by day by day. That the resurrection power of Jesus, in other words, the, the same power which raised Jesus from the dead, lives in us and dwells in us and enables us to live out the life that we are called to in chapter 3 and chapter 4 of this book. Uh, so with that in mind, I want to read you a, a section of Colossians chapter 3, uh, the first four verses. Uh, the Word of God says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, uh, if you want to look at these verses uh, closely here, if you want to give them a title, uh, the title I've given them is that we should pursue Christ who is our life, who is our life. And if you want to look at him closely, you'll notice, first of all, the phrase at the beginning uh, of, ch- of chapter 3, verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ. The point is, is that just as Jesus was buried uh, and our sins were buried with him, so also we receive a new life from him through his resurrection. And everything that follows that introductory sentence, literally everything else in the rest of the book, is based on that foundation. It's built on that reality, on the death and resurrection of Jesus. So if you, if you want to give a section for the whole, uh, the whole rest of Colossians, it would be this, that, that we are to live in light of the gospel. That we are to live in light of the gospel, in light of what Jesus has accomplished for us through his death and resurrection. That we live out of that resurrection life that Jesus has given to us. Now, you also want to notice in verse 1 and 2, two very important verbs. And they are the words seek and the word set. You might want to underline those. Uh, One has to do with your actions, and the other has to do with your mind, with living out the the new life that you have in Jesus, and with a new way of thinking that needs to be yours. And both of these words, uh, you need to understand this, both of these words are in what is called the Greek present imperative. In other words, the the original text that this was written in uh, was not English. English came about in the 1200s. But uh, in ancient Greek, this uh, occurs in what's called the present imperative. Now, you don't need to know what that means exactly, but you need to understand this reality, that it is a A present tense, in other words, something happening now that's an ongoing, that's the sense of the Greek present, it's an ongoing action. 
in the current moment. And it's an imperative. In other words, this is a command. This is something that God continues, that he continues to command and continues to expect us to obey on an ongoing basis. So you'll have to keep setting your mind. You'll have to keep seeking throughout your entire life. That you don't get to a point in time where you have just matured in Christ uh, and you don't need to do this anymore. That your mindset is continually changed. That your continual day by day by day pursuit is seeking the things that are above. And continually setting your mind on them. So with all that in mind, what does it mean to do these things? Because it's one thing to understand that this is a command. Well, what is it? What am I actually supposed to do? Well, what these tell us is the purpose for which you're living your life and what you're supposed to fill your mind with. When Paul says to seek the things Uh, that are above he is not telling us like so many sometimes do uh, you know years a few years ago there were a number of heaven tourism books that came out where people supposedly died and supposedly uh, went to heaven and supposedly wrote down all that they saw there right Um, that is not what we're being encouraged to do in this passage to speculate uh, wildly in some cases on the furniture of heaven and what it looks like. That's not, that's not what Paul is encouraging us to do. When he says to set your mind on things above, he's telling you to think about things from an eternal perspective, to think about Jesus and to think about uh, what it means to live like Jesus in your daily decisions, that he is the purpose of your life. That at the end of your life, you are looking forward and you're living out of the reality that Jesus is at the end. That Jesus walks with you on the one hand through every bit of daily life, but Jesus is the goal. He's the purpose. We're looking to the day when we will stand face to face with him. And our life needs to be shaped by that reality. That's what it means to seek the things above. And to set your mind on them goes right along with that. That that every thought of your heart, every imagination that you have, is devoted not to the things that you can see and touch and taste and feel and smell, but to the things that are outside of this world. The things that are not material. The the eternal realities that the scripture describes and talks about, these are the things that should consume your thoughts. Let me give you an example. About 30 years ago, there was a movie that came out called City Slickers. Now, it's been a long time since I've seen the movie, but here's what I remember from it. That it's a bunch of middle-aged guys, you know, guys in their 40s, who were childhood friends, and they're all simultaneously going through a midlife crisis. And they decide that what they need to do to reverse that trend is to all sign up to go on a cattle drive at a dude ranch for a week. 
and these are you guys are all New Yorkers. Uh, you know, the, the closest they've ever been to a cow is maybe at the Bronx Zoo. And they have no idea what they are about to encounter. And they get out on the dude ranch and they are as comically inept as you would expect. And it's a funny movie, at least what I remember of it was funny. But there is a very serious scene at one point in the movie where the trail boss, who is played by Jack Palance, who's always the villain in the old westerns, is sitting down having a conversation with Billy Crystal, who's kind of the lead character in the movie. And Palance says, you know, he says, every week, all summer, every year for the last however many, I get a bunch of guys like you, they get out here and they think they're going to find themselves out on the cattle drive. He says that somehow the secret of life is out here pushing these cows around. He says, you know what I found out? The secret of life is this. And Billy Crystal looks at him, kind of, kind of like the RCA dog, you know. And he says, the secret of life is your finger? And Palin says, no, no. The secret of life is one and when Billy asks him well what's the one thing Palace doesn't have any answers but you know what the scripture does and what's the one thing that you devote your life to what's the one thing that occupies your thoughts and directs your life it's not driving cattle it's not your job it's not your wife or your husband. It's not your kids. It's not academic achievement. It's not uh, material success. It's not having a gazillion dollars. It's not uh, climbing to the pinnacle of whatever career that you have. It's not, it's not finally obtaining enough uh, enough wealth to buy yourself your very own Bugatti Veyron. I happen to think that would bring me a lot of joy for about 20 minutes. But, uh, but that is not the purpose of life. The one thing that all human life is restless until it finds is a relationship with Jesus Christ and a life of following him. And that's what Paul is telling us here. That Jesus is the one thing. He's the only one that fits the slot, as a matter of fact. As a candidate for being the one thing that is worth living and dying for. In fact, in verse 3, Paul tells us that we've already died. We've already died. Uh, with Jesus. Who we were before we put our faith in Jesus is already dead. And the, and the life that we now have is the life we enjoy with Christ. And so we need to not uh, resuscitate or attempt to uh, give mouth to mouth to our former life because by grace God put it to death with Jesus and gave us a new one. 
And that new life is hidden with Christ in God. Meaning that it is held secure for us by God's own nature and character. And verse 4 underlines the point. The reason that we live our lives with Jesus as the one thing we uh, die and live for is that we are looking forward to his return and he is, he is our life. Now I know this dates me some, but back in the Back in the 1990s, there was a, a series of T-shirts that you would see everywhere on young men uh, across the entire country and even around the world. You would see these T-shirts and they would have a ball on the bottom and they would say something like this. Basketball is life. The rest is just details, right? Baseball is life. Hockey is life. Boxing is life, right? Everything else is just a detail. You know, I think the reason those went out of fashion is that a whole bunch of the people wearing them uh, got old and then they had to get another life. And here's the thing. Christ is our life. And when he appears, we will enjoy fully the new one that we already have. And we're looking forward to the day when we are with him in glory. And so we live our lives uh, with him and his coming in mind. And not some grubby temporary thing in this world that we can see uh, with our own eyes. Instead we're using our spiritual life, our spiritual eyes to look for the one who is coming and to pursue him day by day by day by day until the day when he takes us home. Now, there is an important relationship between these verses that we've just studied and what's coming after. Okay? What's coming after is uh, Paul's condemnation of all the things that we have to reject and lay aside if we're going to live out that new life. And then after that is going to come a section where he tells us, okay, well, well, setting your mind on the things above, seeking the things above includes rejecting all those things, but it also can, can includes pursuing all these things, and we're going to see those things next week. But this week, we're going to deal with the things that we are called to reject. And, and if you want to give a title to this, you could call it Killing Your Sin. Uh, verses 5 through 11, uh, let's look at, get my glasses here. Uh, let's look at these verses together. It says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, too, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth... Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices and have put on the new self, 
which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, uh, if you look, uh, first of all, at uh, verses 4 to 6, you should notice a few things. Uh, Number one, notice that these are commands. There is no sense in which uh, these things are optional for us as believers in Christ. There's no suggestion in the text that these are mere good advice. Part of our calling when we decide to follow Jesus, when we respond to God's call on our life and we put our trust in Him, is to walk in holiness. And there is no, there is no plan B on that. And number two, notice the image that we're given for what to do with these things. It says, put to death. Put to death. It is a violent image. Amen? It's a violent image. And we need to recognize what that is intended to to communicate. Kill your sin is not some casual command that is easy to follow. If you're going to do this, there's going to be struggle. There's going to be blood on the floor. Because it is going to be difficult. We talked about this last week when we talked about asceticism. You know, asceticism will tell you that somehow if you just mistreat your body enough that you can achieve holiness in your soul. And the problem with that is that you can't because harsh treatment of the body doesn't deal with the problem. And because the problem is not in your body, the problem is in your heart. And so putting your sin to death is a struggle and a fight. It is a prize fight for your life in Christ. And it is a violent struggle. It is meant to be. Sometimes I hear Christians uh, talk about this very casually as if it is no big deal. Well, you know, I just struggle with gossip. Or I just struggle with lust. Or I struggle with this or that. And, it, and by the sound of their voice, you can hear that they don't struggle. Or at least they don't struggle very hard. But put to death your sin has the idea of go out in the yard and put it down like old Yeller at the end of the movie. Put it to death. Put these things in the past. Wrestle it to the ground and execute it is the image. Shoot it in the back of the head twice. You hear what I'm saying? This is a serious thing. Uh, And then the other thing you need to notice is the list of sins that we're supposed to kill. There are five of them. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness. 
Let me give you a, a, a definition and explanation of each one. Uh, the word sexual immorality translates the Greek word here, porneon, which is the Bible's junk drawer word for every kind and variety of sexually immoral act. It includes every sexual act, hear me on this, every sexual act outside of covenantal, monogamous, one flesh union between a man and a woman. Uh, so so here's, here's some of the list that would be included in this term. Any kind of homosexuality, any kind of adultery, prostitution, sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your fiancé, uh, pornography, masturbation, one night stands, in uh, any other sexual act uh, that someone's sinful mind might come up with other than one flesh covenantal union between a man and a woman who are married. And it is absolutely forbidden for a Christian to engage in these things. It is something that you are to put to death in your life. Impurity is more subtle. It refers not to the acts, but to your imagination, your speech, your thoughts. Uh, it's what somebody is talking about when they say of someone, they have a dirty mind. You ever been around somebody like that where everything that you say, however innocent in its intended meaning, gets turned into sexualized comment that's impurity and if your imagination dwells there your speech dwells there your thoughts dwell there you are covered in impurity and you need to put your dirty mind to death passion and evil desire are are two related words for every other kind of dishonorable, self-serving lust that people have. Sometimes people think that, well, it, it's, you know, it's only a sin if I act on it. It's only a sin if I actually do it. Or you'll hear sometimes people say this, well, you know, I, I just can't eat at the restaurant. Doesn't mean I can't look at the menu. It's not what the scripture says. Scripture says that our lustful desire needs to be put to death. And if you are looking at someone to whom you are not married with sexual longing, then you are in sin. Pure and simple. And you need to put that passion and evil desire to death. Now, it's interesting in the list of these things, and you know they're all very much related, that you see a sin that you might not expect. You see it? Covetousness. And Paul goes on to explain that covetousness is idolatry. And why is that included? It seems odd. It seems like it maybe doesn't fit. And... And let me explain what covetousness is, first of all, because it's not a term that you hear uh, very much today. In fact, we kind of elevate coveting in our society. We've elevated it to an art form. Um, but what coveting is, 
is the sinful desire to have that which God has not given you and the feeling that he has not given you something that you deserve to have and that you should have and that he is therefore holding out on you. Now you might not articulate it in quite that way, but when you're longing for something God has not given, you're coveting that thing, whatever it is, whether it's a person, whether it's an activity, whether it's a possession, it's coveting. And when you choose to pursue it, you're engaged in it. And I think its inclusion in this list of sexual sins is because all of these five things all have the same root, an idolatrous devotion to something other than God as the, as the, as the source of your meaning, as the, as the thing you're going to pursue with your life. See, God doesn't, doesn't allow us any competitors to him. He says, there is me, and I'm the only God that you're allowed to have. I am the Lord your God. There is none other. And yet we as people, our hearts, as um, Tim Keller likes to say, are an idol factory, I-D-O-L, that they constantly manufacture new idols for us to bow down to and worship. And some of the most convenient for us are these things. When you sin sexually, it's because you worship the pleasures of the flesh instead of God, and you do so because you covet what he has not given to you. Or you've decided to pursue it outside the boundaries that he has set for your blessing and protection. And let me be clear here. God is not anti-sex. Amen? He's not. In fact, he designed it. He invented it. He uh, has blessed it and commanded it even within the context of covenantal one flesh union between a husband and a wife. And we have a whole book about it in the Old Testament celebrating it and, and explaining it and and blessing it and encouraging it. But God does say that pursuing something, even something he's given as a blessing and a joy, outside of the boundaries that he has set for it, is idolatry. It's sin. And, and in addition to that, I think that that coveting is included here because many people who used to sin sexually turn from that at some point and they replace their sensuality with materialism. You seen this? They don't they don't sexually lust anymore, but they lust for stuff. They want to show off their manly prowess or their womanly skill or what have you not in not in who they sleep with but the things they possess but coveting anything whether it's sex or money or a jet ski or status or power or whatever is idolatry pure and simple unless we think well pastor you know everybody does these things are they really that big a deal And I'll admit, everybody does these things. At least every unbeliever 
God forbid that a believer should do this. But even some of us, to our regret and shame, have done these things and had to repent. But are they no big deal? Well, let's look at verse 6. What does it say? On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Let me underline that for a minute. What the scripture is saying here is something that is deep and true. That God will eternally judge those who do these things rather than put these sins to death. Because these kinds of things are the things which indicate that you never knew the Lord. And so you have two choices. You can repent and put your sin to death, or you can pursue your sin and be put to death. But as the old Puritans used to say, there isn't a third choice. There's, there's be killing your sin, or it will be killing you. One or the other. Now, um, is there grace and forgiveness for these things? Absolutely there is. Absolutely there is. In fact, look at verse 7. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. In other words, hey, you Colossians, remember when this used to be your life? Yes. Hey, you Chillicothians and Henryites and Sparlandians, and Laconians, you remember when you used to do these things? Yes. So is there grace? Yes, absolutely. Can God rescue and save and deliver and forgive these things? Absolutely. He can. And He does. Praise God. He has forgiven these things in so many of us. But are they not serious? No, they're deadly serious. And they need to be turned from and put to death. Now, uh, there are also some other things that tie into that. And now you must put them all away. Verse 8, and here's another list that you see. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. These are sins not of the body primarily, but sins of the mouth and sins of the heart. Anger here is the quiet inner rage of someone who may not show it outwardly, but it's there burning inside them. I've seen that. You probably have too. Where you don't necessarily see the outward demonstration, but you see this person and you want to go the other way because they're an angry person. Just eats and burns through their soul. Wrath is what happens when it comes out like a volcano erupting. Malice is when you hate someone to the degree that you are glad for their misery. That's malice. You ever seen that? You know, you ever felt that? I have. You know, 
see somebody that has become your enemy with their car off the road in the ditch and you have that thought, praise God, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, don't praise God for that. Get out and help them. Your enemy is hungry, feed him. He's thirsty, give him something to drink. You see your enemy's donkey fallen under the load, come and help. Right? That's what the scripture calls us to do, not to malice, not to take delight in someone else's misfortune. <coughs> Slander is when you use your words to either defame somebody by flat out lying or with innuendo and suggestion uh, indicate, well, this is who they really are or what they really meant by what they did or what they said. Um, if you need good examples of slander, get yourself a Facebook account or uh, watch anything on any news channel in America. And you'll see daily examples of slander where the worst possible motives and interpretation is given to other people's words. Well, I, I don't like them. I don't agree with them. And therefore, what, they must be a horrible person. And therefore, what they really must have meant is. What they really must have intended is. Slander. To say that and to do that. Obscene talk includes every kind of foul speech from dirty jokes to profanity, to sexual innuendo, to harassing people. You know, this has become a big deal in the news with our politicians, but it is absolutely something that the Scripture forbids as well. That you would, that you would make sexually suggestive comments to anyone that you work with. Unless you're talking about working at home and you're making them to your spouse, you ought not do that. You ought not do that. As believers, we are called to a new and superior kind of life. We're called not just to be different from the world, but to be better than the world. To put to death that which lives in us as part of our old sin nature. Because our old sin nature has been put to death by Jesus Christ at the cross. And in his burial, it was buried with him. But lots of us every day like to give our favorite sins mouth to mouth. And continue to engage in them. Continue to live in them. Continue to walk in them. And we need to leave them in the grave. Now look at verses 9 and 10. We're commanded not to lie to one another. Why not? Because we have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. In other words, we don't let lying and these other sins live in us because as we grow to really know Jesus, what we're doing is progressively over time, day by day, being changed and putting on the new self that Jesus is making out of our lives. In other words, we can understand it like this, that Jesus saves us as we are. He saves us absolutely as we are. God's grace is so sufficient in Jesus Christ 
that no one is so wicked that they cannot be saved by it if they repent. It, it, it reaches so low that no one can fall underneath it unless they have so chosen to reject and rebel against God's offer of salvation. But at the same time, though God takes us as we are, He doesn't leave us as we are. He does not leave us in our mess. You know, when we had little kids, I was, I was cleaning up in the basement yesterday and going through stuff. I found the old baby monitor in a drawer somewhere. I found old flip phones. I also found a bunch of old pictures from when the kids were little. We've got all these things in boxes and school projects. And it was actually really kind of a cool moment, right? And, and what I, one of the things I remember vividly is all of the diapers that we had to change. Now, because I have a wonderful, amazing wife, she changed more diapers than I did, right? But there would be days when my dear wife would look at me and she would say, Oh, dear God, can you handle that one? <laughs> and I would wade in, you know, hazmat suit on to this experience, you know, where we've got to wash sheets in, in addition to the kid, right? Now, why do we do that? Why do we do that? Why do we not leave the kid in his mess? Because we love them. And leaving them in their mess is toxic to them. And in the same way, because Jesus loves us, he does not leave us in our mess. He saves us. He takes us as we are. But he doesn't leave us that way. And as we begin to put our sin to death, we begin to experience by the Holy Spirit the transformation we are putting on the new self that Jesus has called us to do. We begin to see it. We begin to look like the one who created us. See, ever since the garden, people were created in the image of God. But the image of God is marred and distorted in us because of our sin. But what, what coming to faith in Jesus does is it restores in us, the image of God makes it clear, makes it visible, makes it seen. And the more and more you pursue, you pursue Jesus and put your sin to death, the more clear the image of Jesus becomes in, in you who is his reflection. Now, this text concludes with verse 11. And it's a great conclusion. It says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Do you understand the point of this verse? The point of the verse is this. Paul is listing all of the various classifications and divisions of people that were present in his day. And so one of the big divisions was between Jews and he calls them Greeks, but we would call them Gentiles. Between, between Jewish people and all those, all those bacon-loving, blonde-haired, blue-eyed people over there. 
Okay? And then there's another division between the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Those who were circumcised as Jews felt that anybody who was not uncircumcised was unclean, that they were dirty people. If you were a barbarian, you were a non-Greek speaker. And what they heard, the word barbarian is onomatopoeia. Because what, what Greek speakers heard when they heard foreign non-Greek speech was they heard bar, 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 bar. That's the word, the sound they would make in imitation. of The Scythians were regarded as uh, not just non-Greek speakers, but as savages, essentially. And so you're going from the civilized to the uncivilized to the really uncivilized. And of course, you had within a society like ancient the ancient Roman Empire, where upwards of 60% of the entire population were slaves, to whom you could do any imaginable thing because they had no legal status that allowed you to uh, that required you to protect them from you slaves were worse than second class citizens they were not citizens at all they were just property and so one of the big distinctions was between slave and free Paul's point in verse 11 is this. Christ is all, and he is, underline this word, in all. In other words, this is not an exclusive deal. There's no velvet rope on the transformation that a person can experience through faith in Jesus Christ. Whatever the humanly derived caste system and social divisions are that people erect to include themselves in the inner ring and exclude everybody else that Christ transforms and triumphs over every single one of those that there's no kind of person that Jesus cannot uh, die for no kind of person he did not die for no kind of person who cannot experience the new life that he offers uh, through faith in him in his death on the cross, in his resurrection from the grave, every single solitary person on earth can, if they choose, experience new life in Christ. Jesus paid it all for everyone. And so not only is it possible for everyone on earth of whatever group they belong to, You know, if, if, you're a, if you're a left-handed Asian lesbian, you can come to faith in Christ. If you are a, if you are a, a white, Jewish, upper-class billionaire, you can come to faith in Jesus Christ. If you're regarded by the world as a nobody, you can come to faith in Christ. If you are, if you are the gay film producer of pornographic movies, you can come to faith in Christ. 
And if you're just an ordinary sinner, like you and me and most other people, it doesn't matter. You can come to faith in Christ too. And you too can set your mind on things above. You too can seek Christ where he dwells. Day by day, you too can reflect the image of God. You too can live a transformed life. You too can find the one thing for which all of us are seeking that is worth dying and then living for. You too can find it. And it is in Christ. And in Christ, all of these groups of people in whom uh, Christ offers transformation. All of these groups of people are meant to be part of the people of God. And so not only does Jesus take all comers, but so does the church. So does this church, incidentally. Because we recognize that here there is no Jew, no Greek, no, uh, no circumcised, no, uncirc- no uncircumcised, no uh, barbarian, no Scythian, no slave, no free. There is Christ. And he is all and he is in all. And so membership in God's family is not limited to one little cast of people. But it does require seeking Christ and setting your mind on him. And pursuing him as the one thing you live and die for. Looking upward to him who is enthroned in heaven and coming from heaven to rescue those who have put their faith in him. So, we close our time together in the word. I want you to remember these things. To pursue Christ who is your life. And kill your sin as a result. That if he is your life, kill your sin and put on the new life that God has given you and that he enables you to live by the same resurrection power that gave you eternal life in the first place. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, this is an exciting message. It's a sobering message in many respects. For all of us, we thank you that grace triumphs over sin. That grace not only triumphs in the beginning of our Christian life as we put our faith in Christ, but it triumphs in our daily Christian life as we try to put our sin to death because we live for you. Father, we thank you that Jesus' power to overcome these things is not limited It is the same unlimited power which raised him from the dead and which will one day raise us from the dead who put our faith in him. That the same resurrection to to new life that we experience at the beginning is the same resurrection we can experience to live the new life day by day. Father, help us to live out the new life. Help us to recognize Jesus as the one thing for which we die, and then live. And Father, I pray that we would all be diligent in putting our sin to death, not to puff up ourselves with how righteous we are, but so that we might see Jesus more clearly reflected in who we become. 
And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.